we're going to be in Matthew uh, chapter 5 today, Matthew chapter 5, and uh, we're just going to be looking at one verse, Matthew chapter 5 and verse 17, but we are continuing on with this um, series, the Advent series, the series celebrating the coming of Jesus Christ, and we're asking the question, why did Jesus come? And the answer we're finding not from what we've been told or what we've been taught, but we're listening to what Jesus said. We're going to hear what He says and say, "What is? Why did you come, Jesus?" And He's going to tell us. Um, I think I may have told you there's probably about at least twelve or so of these "Why did He come?" statements. Jesus says, "I came for this reason." About twelve of those, give or take. Um, I'm not covering all of those this year. Um, Lord willing, I might get a chance some other time and another Advent season to cover some more of them. But we're covering five, uh, I think five of them this year. And uh, last uh, couple weeks we covered that Jesus came to tell us the truth. Jesus came to fix everything. And today we're going to be looking at Jesus came to fulfill all of Scripture. This is in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 17. As I'm about to preach this, one of the things that I'm very self-aware of, I don't don't know if y'all, I think y'all say you like my preaching, but I wonder wonder if you're listening to it. Uh, Because I have one message, one message, I don't know if you can tell this or not, but I got one message. The message gets on my face all the time about this. It says, you need to have a different ending, a different, it's like, no, I've got one message. It's about Jesus, that's all I've got, that he's the answer. And so this message today really is kind of all my messages in one, really what it's about. Because I, I think this comes from a place of, this is a personal thing to me. I, I grew up, I think I told y'all this, and you may know this, but I grew up in a, in a, a missionary home, preacher's home. My daddy, I mean, we started churches in our living room with U.S. military in overseas. First First few times we'd meet, we'd be sitting in the living room. We'd have about 10 or 12, you know, um, uh, soldiers or uh, seamen or, you know, just different, whatever those, in different places that they would be in different, different uh, branches of the military. And so I grew up in that, and it was always around that. And as a result of hearing my daddy preach, and don't hear me wrong, my daddy's a pretty good preacher. If you ever hear him preach, you're going to hear the gospel, I guarantee you. Good man. Does good work. I believe what he believes. But after growing up in that, for some reason or another, Jesus became kind of a mascot, you know? You know what a mascot is? Something that sort of stands for something, but it doesn't really... It's like if you saw football yesterday, you probably saw some mascots on the sidelines. Those, those mascots don't do anything. They're, they're, just, they're just kind of images. They don't mean anything, not really. It's what's happening on the field that matters, you understand? And that's how Jesus kind of became to me for some reason. I grew up in it, and I knew he was important. I knew he was important. Uh, kind of a key person in the scripture, but kind of on the same level as Moses or David or something. It's just how it got messed up in my head. Don't get me wrong, my daddy never taught that, but that's the way I listened to it. And I'm afraid there's a lot of you that feel the same way, whether you would admit it that way or not, but that's kind of how you think about Jesus. And I want you to understand that if I have one reason, one purpose, one goal in mind every time I stand to preach, but definitely today, is to help you to understand that Jesus is not a mascot. That Jesus is not just an important character, even a major character. That Jesus is the point of all of this. You take Jesus away and we have no hope. As you heard Jonathan say, if there's no resurrection, I mean, 
Forget the resurrection. If Jesus doesn't exist, we got no hope to begin with. And then, of course, if he never came out of the grave, we're lost. We're men most miserable. But I need you to understand, more than anything, Jesus is the point. So why did Jesus come? Well, in the Gospels, as we've already looked at a couple, and there's more to look at, but Jesus gives several answers to that question. I believe the way that, in the way that I'm looking at it, the way that I'm studying it, I believe that all these answers are complementary. They, they add to each other. They kind of give different facets of the, the gem that it is, the coming of Jesus Christ. They let us understand all of that from a lot of different angles. But at the base of all of those answers, you need to understand this about the coming of Jesus Christ. Jesus is coming to this earth was the plan from the beginning. You can go all the way back to Genesis in chapter 3 and verse 15. The Adam and Eve stand in the garden. First man, first woman. God told them the one thing not to do. One thing they did. They had one job. And they couldn't do that. They didn't leave that alone. They had to go eat of that fruit. But then Jesus, or rather God comes along and He talks to the serpent who had tempted Eve. And He says to the serpent in Genesis 3.15, He says, I'm going to put enmity, or I'm going to put a barrier, I'm going to put conflict between you, serpent, devil, and the woman, Eve, and her seed. He says that in her seed, and thy seed, and her seed after that. He says, I'm going to put, I'm going to put a divide between it. He says that the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, He says that seed of the woman would bruise the head of the serpent while that serpent would bruise the heel of her seed. Let me put that in, in English for you real quick. He says, throughout humanity's life, the devil's going to be striking at him like a wicked old snake all along. He's going he's to hurt him. He's going to bruise him. He's going to hurt him. But there's going to come one to come along and he's going to stomp on that snake's head and it's going to be done. That's what he's going to do. He promised that. Oh, this is in Genesis. We never even heard the name Jesus yet until you get to Matthew. But in Genesis, he's talking about that. But not only was it the plan by the beginning of time, but Jesus' coming was the plan before time ever even began. Peter says it this way, that he was foreordained. First Peter chapter 1 and verse 20. He was foreordained before the foundation of the world. And you say, well, Matthew, how does that work? I don't know. I ain't God. God's the one that does this stuff. But he planned that Jesus would come before there was ever even a world formed. I'm telling you all that. And you say, well, I know that, Matthew. I understand that. But you need to understand that when Jesus came, this was a long-awaited, long-planned-for fulfillment. He didn't come. As if you go back to go, go to go with me to verse seventeen of, of this chapter five. One verse. He says, "Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets." He didn't come to get rid of something. He didn't come to to be a replacement. There wasn't some plan over here that God said, "Ah, oh, that ain't working out so good. Let me try something else." He didn't say, "Well, that was my plan, but things are kind of got off the rails. I didn't know they were going to do this, that, or the other thing." So let me try plan B. That's not what Jesus has come to do. It's not a new idea. Jesus' coming was not a new idea that just occurred to God. You know how sometimes we get these ideas, we're doing one thing, like, oh, what if I tried this? That's not how God works. God, from the beginning and before the world is ever founded, He says that Jesus has come. So He has come. As you read this whole verse, He says, Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy but to fulfill. 
Jesus has not come to come up with a new idea, to come up with a brand new thing. This was God's plan from the beginning, and Jesus simply came, and He is the missing piece. He is that final thing. He is the thing that brings it all together. That's why Jesus has come. I'm going to take just a few minutes to give you, I hope, a pretty simple thought from this passage. I hope it'll be a help to you. And we're just going to look at this together and draw some encouragement from it. Let's pray. Father, help me to convey the, the weight, the excitement, and the life-changing truth that Jesus is what this whole world needs. It's what these people see to hear me, Lord. Help me, God. Help, them, help me to convey that to them. And I'm praying that you will open our eyes and hearts and minds. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus says that he came to fulfill. I think you understand what that word means. But just think about it for a minute. When you fulfill something, you give it its purpose. You complete it. You fully realize it, the thing that it could have been. You know how you say that has a lot of potential? Well, whenever it reaches its potential, it has fulfilled it because it has done exactly what it came to do. That's what Jesus is doing. He says, I'm fulfilling it. I'm satisfying. I'm consummating. I am, I am illustrating what perfection looks like. That's what he's saying. He says, I have come to fulfill it. The it he refers to in that verse. Uh, the, the, the fulfilling that he's talking about is going back to the law and the prophets. Law or the prophets. He says, I'm not come to destroy the law or the prophets. I'm not come to destroy, but to fulfill. The law and the prophets. That's a phrase that he would have used. Like I would use today, if I say the Bible, you know what I'm talking about generally, right? There's a book that has about 66 books in it. Starts in Genesis, goes to Revelation. When I say the Bible, that's what I'm talking about. When he said the law and the prophets, they knew what he was talking about. What you and I today would have called the Old Testament. That's what we would have called it. It included every bit of the law. That would be Moses' writings, the first five books of the Old Testament. It would have included the poetry. It would have included the prophets. It would have included those books of history. It would have included everything that happened up until this point in history. It would have included all of God's revelation of himself to the people. Every king, every battle, Every leader, every sacrifice, every observance, all of that would have been there. The way that the, way that the writer of Hebrews puts it, he says in Hebrews chapter 1 and verses 1 and 2, he says that God in sundry times and in diverse ways. He says that God does this a lot in a lot of different ways. He has, as he says there, that he spake in times past unto the, unto the fathers by the prophets. God has been talking to man from the beginning, what he's saying. But he says that he has in these last times, this is the writer of Hebrews, Hebrews 1, verses 1 and 2, has in these last days spoken unto us by his Son. Saying that God always talks. God is always revealing himself. God is not hiding himself. He is making himself known to the world. And he's done that. You go Genesis through Malachi, you'll see God revealing himself. But he has done it in its most perfect and complete form in the person of Jesus Christ. That's how he's communicating himself. All of that is simply to say that all of Scripture is really and only about Jesus. That's the whole point of my sermon to you today. 
three very simple and potentially seeming repetitive, but I want you to pay attention to what the, the nuance is here. First of all, Scripture is all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. Because what Jesus has done is He is the, the culmination of the Old Testament. Everything that comes in the Old Testament is a shadow, uh, uh, sort of an echo of the reality that is Jesus. You can go to the Old Testament and you'll see some, some things about some, um, uh, some prophets. You see some prophets. You know some of the prophets, these guys who are foretelling the future? And you're going to hear about some good prophets, some godly prophets. You're going to hear about some man, men like Jeremiah who wept over the people of God. You're, you're going to hear about some brave and bold uh, voices for God, like Elijah who would go before the king and would, at the risk of his own life, be willing to tell the king, here's what God said. And of course, remember Jezebel, the queen, she kind of running out of town, essentially. But nonetheless, he was brave and he was bold. He was willing to do those things for God. The other hand, you're going to find some, some lying prophets. You're going to find some people who took advantage of their position as people knew that they got a word from God and they would take advantage of that and go and find a way to profit, P-R-O-F-I-T, from being a prophet. That's what some of them would do. By the way, we still have people doing that today, by the way. We've still got some people doing that today. That said, that's what you'll find in the Old Testament. You'll find some godly prophets. You'll find some lying prophets. But even whether we're looking at a man who is using his position as God intended it, or he's taking it and he's abusing his position, you know what both of those prophets are telling us? They're pointing to one, his name, and the only one who's worthy of the name of faithful and true. The one who has the truth. We talked about that last week. The one who has the truth. Revelation chapter 19 and verse 11. Faithful and true. That's who they're pointing to. You're going to find some priests in the Old Testament, people who would stand before God on behalf of the people, try to, try to uh, um, talk to God on their behalf to get their sins forgiven. And you're going to find some good priests in the Old Testament. You're going to find people like Aaron. You're going to find people uh, like Samuel, people who, who go and, and, and uh, make supplication to God, God, please help the people. There's people who would actually go in on, a, on, a, on an annual basis into this special holy place, and they would offer up these, this lamb's blood that was from these lambs that fit perfect specifications, that they only certain lambs, there was a very small percentage of them that would fit that, but they would take these lambs who would be ritually sacrificed and take their blood into the Holy of Holies and put it on the altar and use that to, to say, God, please atone for the sins of the people. And God would, of course, hear their prayers. But there were other priests that were a little uh, less holy a little more sinful. Remember Eli's son, Eli in the Old Testament? His boys went and they used their position of power. They kind of used it to, um, let's just say they abused their authority. Let's put it to you that way. They thought that was uh, their, their own personal dating website was to find the women who were coming to worship and start taking them and uh, abusing them and using them in that way. But I want you to understand that no matter whether they were good men or wicked men, these priests all pointed to one thing. There's a God of mercy. There's a God of love. There's a God of grace. There's a God of forgiveness. And they were all pointing to the one that that God would one day take his own blood, not the blood of a bull or a goat, but take his own blood into the holiest of holies 
and sacrificed his own self for the people. The writer of Hebrews says, but don't you listen to this. This is, this is important. By his own blood, he's talking about Jesus, he entered once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. These priests, even the best of them, would go in every every year and offer this sacrifice every year, and they had to be perfect as perfect can get. They had to be ritually cleansed every year. They had to do it every year, and every year the people would mess up worse, and every year that priest would do it again. Every year he would go into that room. Every year he would take a different lamb's blood. Every year he had to do it, but they were pointing to the fact that there would be one who by his own blood, he shed his own blood, and he walked in pure and perfect and holy and went into not just the Holy of Holies on this earth, but into the true Holy of Holies, into the presence of God Himself. And He poured out His own blood on the true altar. And He gave His own self and then never had to happen again. It's all been paid for once and for all. It's an eternal redemption. The best you could hope for in the Old Testament was a really good priest who followed the rules and he took blood in once a year and he'd have to go again. But we have one, and they were pointing towards one who would do it once and he would be done. And he would be done once and for all. The Old Testament, there's a lot of kings and leaders mentioned in the Old Testament. There are good kings and wicked kings. But all of them point to the king of kings and the Lord of Lords, who rules justly and righteously. I'm trying to get you to see that every good thing and every bad thing in the, New Te- the Old Testament, everything in the Scripture was purposefully revealed to us, shared with us, to signal to us that we lacked something, that we desperately needed something, that the best, the best that could be offered would always fall short of what we really needed. Because we need a faithful spouse, a loving parent, an honorable king, a personal and asking God, an able physician, a fair boss man, a winning military leader, a just judge, and a value-adding merchant. We need those things. We want those things. We long for those things. And I want to just go ahead and admit to you, I still want those things. I don't have most of those things. There's a few of them that I can admit to, and I can say, yep, thank the Lord, I have this or that. But I can tell you, there's more gaps in my list than there are fulfillment. It's all pointing to the fact that there is only one who gives us what we need. Paul writes this in Romans chapter 8. He says that there's this earnest expectation of the creature waiting for the manifestation of the sons of God. He is simply saying, listen, all the earth is literally on the edge of their feet, praying forward. We want this perfection. We see what's wrong. I can, I bet, I can guarantee if I gave you the floor, y'all could tell me a hundred things wrong with this world. And I want to go ahead and tell you, I'll say amen to every one of them. There's a lot of wrong with this world. But all that pointing to is the fact that there is one who is perfect. There's one who is perfect. But we know this is wrong because we know that there's one that's right. That's what the Old Testament is doing to us. All of Scripture is pointing to Jesus as the point 
of the Scripture. The kings and the preachers and the holy men will fail you. The religious systems, the, the politics and the, the books and hobbies, they're going to fail you. Parents are going to fail you. Children are going to fail you. Friends are going to fail you. Your job is going to fail you. Your wealth is going to fail you. Your health will absolutely fail you. We don't like to think about it, but it's going to happen to the best, the healthiest of us. But there's one who will never fail you. All of those weaknesses and those broken things, you know what they do? They're supposed to do? That's the point of them? This is built in by God, our Creator, for this purpose. Remember I told you this was His plan from the beginning. He didn't just think, hmm, let me see, what can I do to fix this? Oh, here you go. No, no. He built this into the system. He built this into the way He wanted us to understand that nothing is going to work except Him. He is all the point. He is the purpose. He is the goal to point us in that direction. The value of everything, including the Scripture. Please understand this. I love the Bible. It's God's holy word. I believe every word in it. I believe it is perfect in every way. But do you know the purpose? Do you know the real reason? It's not to make you make you a little happy on a gloomy day. It's not to be artwork on your wall. These are fine things for you to do. But the purpose, the purpose, the purpose is to point to that you have a need that can never be met by anything but the one named Jesus. That's the purpose of the Scripture. That's the whole point of it. That is the whole thing. Second point I want to get across to you. All the same little verse. We're still in chapter 5 and verse 17. But the Scripture is really about Jesus. It's really about Jesus. I want you, I want you to hear me here. Yes, Jesus is the culmination of Scripture, but He's also the standard of the Old Testament. He's the standard. Everything in the Bible, you can look at it and you can judge it. This is good, this is bad, this is right, this is wrong, this is wicked, this is evil, this is nice, this is not nice. However you want to judge it, you can judge it. And we have a judgment or a, a, a standard by which we can judge it. And Jesus is the one that by which we can judge that standard. You can look at the law. This is a just law. This is an unjust law. This is a good war. This was a bad king. But they are only good or bad because they reflect who Jesus is. Can I just give you one small example? One that kind of does something to my soul. I don't know why it does. And some of these days I'm going to preach on this topic. I just can't get my mind around it all the way. But I want to talk to you about this. Just, that. just a little brief. Just give you an idea of this. In, the Levit- in Leviticus, and I can't remember now off the top of my head if it's 23 or 26. I think it's chapter 23. Check me if you want to. But it's in chapter 23 or 26. There's something called the Day of Jubilee. I love this concept. It is such a good thing. And I can tell you, when I tell you about it, if you've never heard about it before, you're like, yeah, let's do that. You're going to say it's good. You know why you're going to say it's good? Because it's meeting the standard. Jesus is the standard. I want you to hear this. They had this, this law that every seven years, they would take a break. Or every seven days, they would take a break. Call it Sabbath, right? Then every seven years, they would take a, a different kind of break. But essentially, a sabbatical they would take. And then every seven seven years, so what are we up to now? 49, 50 years, something like that. Every seven, seven years, they would do something called the Day of Jubilee. Here's what they would do on the Day of Jubilee. Not only would they take a break, they would, they would let the land rest. It was an agricultural uh, community. They would let the land rest. But anybody that had any debt, poof, they're gone. Wiped away. 
if for one reason or another I had to put myself into servitude to you, indentured servitude, or might call it slavery, if I had to do that, if I had to do that for one reason or another because I couldn't pay my debts or whatever, every day of Jubilee, you know what would happen? You're no longer a slave. You're released. You're free. If I had to take my family land that had been my family for literally generation after generation and generation, I had to sell some of it just to pay some bills, to, to make ends meet, to, to maybe start my business, whatever that was, every day of Jubilee, poof, it comes back to my family. It's part of the family again. That was the day of Jubilee. You know what that's called? That's called reckoning. That's called righting wrongs. That's called fixing everything. And I can tell you, at least from where I'm sitting, I can say, wow, that's pretty good. I like that. You know why I can say that? Partly because I would benefit from it, and you probably would too. But you know why we think that? Jesus here. He's the one who comes in and he writes all wrongs and fixes everything. So we can say a law like that is a good law because that law is met by Jesus. Jesus is the one who's the standard of that. You can do the same thing with the priests and the sacrifices. Going back to Leviticus, the first seven chapters of Leviticus are all about these sacrifices that the people had to do to, to be acceptable to God. You know who makes us acceptable to God? Jesus makes us acceptable to God. You can actually say, God, talk to me. Listen to me. And you can say, we have this little thing, and it's not perfunctory. It means something. In Jesus' name. We do that because it is only because of Jesus that what comes out of my mouth, God even cares about because of what Jesus has done. All I'm trying to say is that all of these things, the prophecies, are all good, or they're not good, as much as they point to or reflect who Jesus is. We can judge all of that because He alone is the standard of perfection. Anything else, everything else is going to fall short of the glory of God and nothing, nothing, nothing can meet His standard. In fact, you go to the passage with me in chapter, uh, chapter 5 and verse 17. Just skip down to verse 20. And He says there, Jesus says this, For I say unto you that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you shall in no case enter into the, head, into the kingdom of heaven. He says, I want to point to you, to the people who, despite what we preachers want to make these guys out to be some kind of religious boogeyman, the scribes and the Pharisees were, by their, by their own, by, 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 by everything you can evaluate them, they were the most religious, perfectly religious people that ever lived. It's what religious people want to be when they grow up. That's what they were. They were really good people. They were they lived good lives. People looked at them and said, that's a good man. That's a good person. That's the kind of people they were. And he says, unless you exceed that, not meet that, exceed that, you're not going to heaven, he says. He's saying, listen, you can be as good as you want to be and be as religious as you want to be, but you ain't going to heaven just because of that. That's not going to help you. That's not going to meet the standard because Jesus is the standard. I want you to think about this for just a second. Maybe, maybe this will do something for you. Maybe it won't. So just take it and we'll move on. Jesus is the standard. Anything that Jesus does meets the standard because Jesus is the standard. Do you understand that? It's the minute that He does it, it's immediately perfect because He did it. I think I want to be connected to Him somehow, don't you? I, I, I can tell you, some of y'all like me, it's supposed like you can't do nothing right. Like you do this and everything messes up. You try, well, we try this and that's messed up. But the minute Jesus does it, it's perfect. Man, I would like to be judged through Jesus. Hallelujah, you can be. Just put your faith in Him who's already died for you. You allow God to put His wrath out on Jesus instead of you. And I guarantee you, you've got everything you need. And then some. 
Jesus is the standard. Nothing short of Him will satisfy. Nothing short of Him will satisfy. He's just the standard of all Scripture. So we need to accept Him. He's what my soul wants. He's what the point of everything that my soul is wanting. He's, he's what I must be made to need and to want and to seek. And as the writer in Acts, Luke says in Acts, there's no other name under heaven whereby you must be saved. The only way of salvation. We have the perfection of Jesus. Scripture finally is only about Jesus. You go back to the Old Testament, there are a lot of demands. That's how we often think about the Old Testament, the do's and the thou's and the do's and don't, right? You know, do, don't do this, thou shalt not. You know, that's what we think of it. And it's true, it's there. There's a lot of it there. There's a lot of, lot of demands in the Scripture. But Jesus is the satisfaction of every demand that was ever given in the Old Testament. What some people want to do is we want to go and we want to take out the parts we like and ignore the parts we don't like. For example, we like to focus in on the parts, especially those of us that are conservative and, and, and right-wing or whatever, we like to focus on those parts that say, you know, homosexuality is a sin. It does say that, by the way, and amen. That said, we like to focus on that, but we don't really like to focus on the part about loving our neighbor and caring for the, the stranger and things like that. And if y'all don't understand what I'm saying, that's fine, but if you do and you're still not saying amen, y'all just think on it a little bit. Y'all just think on that a little bit. That's fine, but I'm trying to get you to see that what we try to do with those demands of Scripture is what even the religious people would do, is they would try to twist those demands, or dilute those demands, or ignore those demands. That's what we like to do. We just expect it, ah, it's not that important. But what Jesus did in this passage, and I won't take the time to unveil all of this to you, but in the following verses, verses 21 through verse 48, the next section of this, he gives six examples of things that the demands of the Old Testament that people like to twist, ignore, or dilute. And he addresses them. He talks about murder in verse 21. He talks about adultery in verse 27. He talks about divorce in verse 31. He talks about oaths in verse 33. He talks about revenge in verse 38. And he talks about loving your neighbor in verse 43. He talks about each one of those. And there's a, there's a pattern of what he does. He says, there's a generous in, uh, interpretation you folks are making, he says. It has been said. This is the way it says. It, it has been said. And you read what he says. He's saying, y'all are trying to go easy on yourself. You're trying to take the easy path out just so you can kind of meet the standard. Can I, just, can I point to one here? Let's just go to the, the first one, verse 21. Right there after the text. It's about murder. He says, You have heard that it was said by them of old, Thou shalt not kill, and whosoever shall kill shall be in danger of the judgment. He says, Your generous interpretation of that is, you think that as long as you haven't literally put a knife in somebody and took the life out of them, that you're okay. But he says, and he says, he goes, he says, y'all missed it. The real law, by the way, y'all who wrote the Old Testament, do y'all know who wrote, whose word is it? Can somebody tell me whose word this Bible is? God's word. Who's Jesus? God. You who wrote the Old Testament? Jesus wrote the Old Testament. So I think he knew what he was writing when he put it in there. Do you understand that? So when he gives you this, he's not saying, well, that's what they said, but here, I'm this prophet, I'm going to call this. No, no, no. He's like literally telling them, y'all think it means this? I meant this with this. So he says, y'all think as long as you didn't kill somebody, you're good. 
But he goes on and says in verse 22, But I say unto you, that whosoever is angry with his brother without cause shall be in danger of judgment. Oh my goodness. He's saying that murder thing is not just about stabbing somebody. It's actually about being mean to folks. It's about having hate in your heart for people. And I don't try to preach that particular point, but simply to say that's what's true of every one of these. Loving your neighbor, uh, the adultery, and on down the line. He says, y'all try to water it down. Y'all try to get it to where you can abide by it. So you feel good about this. Oh, I'm a good religious person because I haven't stabbed anybody today. Now, I can't stand those people on that other side, but I haven't stuck a knife or stuck a gun in somebody. Hang on a minute. Jesus says, no, no, y'all missed it. Y'all missed it. Do you know what his standard is? I know, I know Christian folks, and I know how we are. I know how we are. I know what we do. You know what we say? Well, nobody's perfect. Is that wrong? Am I right? And you know what? You're right. Ain't nobody perfect. And because of that, you're all going to hell. And because of that, you need a Savior. Do you understand that? Ain't nobody perfect. That's not an excuse. That's a condemnation. That's what that is. And that's what Jesus is telling us. That perfection is required. Perfection is required. In fact, if you go by Jesus' standard, and Jesus is supposed to be the, the easy one, right? When we talk about Old Testament, New Testament, all oh, Jesus is all kind and gentle. I understand that, but Jesus' standard in this passage, he damns us all. Clearly, plainly. But you know what? He's the standard, not me. He's the ultimate author of it all. He's the ultimate one. He doesn't twist Scripture. He doesn't change it. He doesn't crash it. But what Jesus does, you know, he does it even better. He satisfies it. He obeys it. He does exactly what he wrote down. He's better than any preacher I can imagine. Most of us preachers, we preach it all day long, but try to make us live it. That's another thing. Jesus, on the other hand, if he said it, he's doing it. Is that something? That's who he is. That's who he is. He's the satisfaction of all scripture. We have to accept him. Unless you do take this word and try to ignore parts or do like Thomas Jefferson and literally cut passages out that you don't like so you don't have to abide by it or get the conscience tricked by it. Unless you do that, this Bible, you take it on its plain face, it will condemn you, but it sets you up for the one and the only solution. His name is Jesus. With Jesus, you are justified. You're accepted. You know, Jesus loves you. Can I just tell you all that? I, I, I've been so mean today. I just want to make sure you all know Jesus loves you. He loves you so much. He does. I mean, I'm talking about even, even some of you, and you know your heart, you know what you did last night, and as wicked as you are, Jesus loves you. He knows everything you did, and He loves you. Ain't that something? I'm telling you, He doesn't hold it against you because He's already paid for it on the cross. He's not sitting over you like some, some bad bitch and pointing his finger at you look at you wicked saying, no, what is he doing? He's saying, I died for you. I took my blood and I put it on the altar for you. The value of the Bible, the value of all things is that we are seen. Uh, it shows us that we need a Savior. It shows us that we see the need of our Savior. And his name is Jesus. So what is the real reason of this season. Well, it's Jesus, right? We know that. Well, why did He come? 
I want you to know that He came to fulfill every word of God's Word. He came to be the pinnacle, the ultimate point of human history. He came to show us what perfection looks like because we try and try and try and don't we fall short. He came to meet every standard of the Bible. I'm closing with this simply to ask you, what have you done with this Jesus? Have you made him your mascot? Is he on the sidelines cheering you on with whatever life you decide you wanted to live? So you can go and worship the God you want to worship. You say, well, Matthew, I don't have an idol. I'm not, I'm not a Hindu. I'm not a, one of these other things where I've got little, little icons. Well, it's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about us worshiping, giving our lives to spending all of our energy against our jobs or our friends or our hobbies or our retirement or our financial success or whatever. We all got our own little thing, don't we? Jesus needs to be the point of all that. I think so many of us have pushed him off to the side so we can go and pursue what we want so that Jesus don't bother us anymore. I think some of us have politely nodded at him. I mean, we're at least here on Sunday morning, right? That's got to be worth something. We like you, Jesus. He's a good guy. No, don't politely nod at him while you tell yourself lies about how you're okay and everything's okay. Unless you find yourself in Jesus, completely assumed and subsumed in Christ, unless He is everything that you are, you are not okay. In fact, His very presence and existence means that you're not okay. You need Him. You need Him to cover you up. Have you acknowledged Him that it's the point of everything. Have you acknowledged him as the standard against which all is to be measured? Who the satisfaction for what your soul says? I want to ask you to stand, and I want to invite you to accept this perfect gift of Jesus Christ. I'm begging you. In fact, I'm begging you. I'm begging some of you that are Christians. You say, well, Matthew, I'm already saved. I don't need to be saved again. I agree. I'm not trying to get you to be saved again. But I think there's some Christians who, you're like a little kid on Christmas Day, and mom and daddy have saved up. I remember me and Vanessa did this one year, you know, early, when our, first, our youngest son, our oldest son was, was first born. There was this one thing. We saved up. We didn't have any money. Saved up all this money. Tried everything to get this one thing. He opened that box. And the boy played with the food box the way that he did the toy. Some of you have Jesus. He's your Savior. You confess faith in Him. But you're sitting there messing with the box of the treasures of this world, and Jesus is not the treasure of your heart because you have not seen that He's the point of it all. And I want y'all to ask God to forgive you, repent of that, and embrace the pleasure and the joy that is Jesus. Would you do that? Would you take Him? Some of you Christians need to just stand where you are and cry out to Him. Some of you need to come on up here and pray to Him and say, God, I'm so sorry. I've missed out on what you have. Some of you need to accept that gift. There are others of you that are not believers. You've never put your faith in Jesus. Jesus has died for you. He's offered Himself as a sacrifice for your sins. Won't you come and accept Him? Won't you come? Won't you come?